introduce the Venerable and Reverend Kusala Bhikshu. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> that was good. I like that. Well, I'm happy to be here today. Uh, happy to be here anywhere, actually, but it's nice to be here. This is a fantastic facility, and it's awe-inspiring. And I hope what I have to say will clear up a few things about what it means to be a Buddhist, and more importantly, what it means to be a human being. So, 1978, I don't know how many of you remember that year, but, but I was 29 years old, and I was soon to be 30, and I just freaked out. Because I seemed to understand that once you get past 30, then you just die. <laughs> and, and I wasn't prepared for that. I'd been born a Lutheran, which made my parents happy. And then I became an agnostic in high school, because in the 1960s, it was important to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. <laughs> so I felt comfortable in not knowing. Being agnostic, you didn't have to commit yourself one way or the other. And then in 1978, at the age of 29, I figured it's time to get serious about this, how to live and how to die. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions, and I read that book and the chapter on Buddhism twice, and I said, I'm going to be a Buddhist because that made the most sense to me in those pages in that book. So I went to a meditation center, which is where I now live, and I learned how to meditate. And I would go back on Sundays and listen to the Dharma talks. And meditation was one of the most challenging things I had ever done, because you just sit quietly for long periods of time. And I thought to myself, isn't this sort of wasting time? And then I felt the pain and suffering of not moving and trying not to think. And I thought back to the first talk that the Buddha ever gave, which was called the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the turning of the wheel talk, where he talked about the four noble truths. And he said, the first truth that I have discovered is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, you know, my life had been pretty good until then. <laughs> and there was a little discontent, and there was a little dis-ease about certain aspects of my life. And, and I thought to myself, is, is that what the suffering is? Not feeling comfortable with who you are, where you are, what you're doing? what you should be doing, what you're not doing. Is that what suffering is? And now I had a name for that feeling that I'd had most of my life. And I realized that I, too, was suffering. But in the context of Buddhism, it's okay to realize that because there's an answer to suffering. And so what I did is I continued to listen to the talks of the Buddha. And he said, let me tell you why you are suffering. 
You are suffering because you have desire, you have attachment, you have aversion, you have a thirst that can't be quenched. And no matter what you try to do to make yourself feel better, it's only temporary. All the other stuff always comes back. I went, man, that's it. That's why. You know, I, I think maybe if I had a different girlfriend or a better job or a bigger TV set, then my life would be good. But none of those things and all the things I tried didn't really change my life other than in that moment in a temporary way. Then he went on to say, there is an answer. And the answer is nirvana. Now, nirvana is pretty hard to understand, but let me give you just a, a thumbnail sketch of nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. Once you achieve nirvana, you'll never have to suffer again. Nirvana is the end of karma. Now, you might not think that's good. And if karma is, in fact, my intention, my speech, my action, and it's what I use to create the world around me in a skillful or unskillful way, getting rid of my karma, why would that be a good thing? And the Buddha went on to say, because your karma migrates lifetime to lifetime. We have something called rebirth. And we are reborn infinite times until we finally achieve nirvana, which becomes the end of our rebirth cycle. So what's wrong with rebirth? Well, the problem with rebirth is you suffer in every lifetime. Sometimes more, sometimes less. But in every lifetime, you've buried your parents because you've lived longer than they have. And it's sad and you cry. You've buried countless pets because they don't live longer than 10 to 15 years, you know, and there's little Bobby Joe now, he died. So you get somebody else, you get a little cat or a little dog, it dies too. In one lifetime, you've buried 10 pets, if not more. So each lifetime we have experienced, we have suffered and we have felt pain and we have felt loss and it's uncomfortable. And the Buddha said, if you achieve nirvana, you will not only end the suffering in this lifetime, but you'll never have to be reborn again. You'll never have to suffer again in the same way you have suffered countless lifetimes. Now, this is a hard sell, because what we're talking about is maybe not existing. And who doesn't want to exist? You have to admit, life is full of ups and downs, but it's better than not existing at all. But I think what the Buddha was talking about was even more profound than our existence. I think what he meant was this. I have found a way to exist without being born. Birth seems to be the problem because everything that's born has to die. And if you can exist without being born, you'll never have to die. And he figured it out. So I'm thinking, okay, cool. I'm going to work on being born until I achieve nirvana, and then I'm going to work on not being born and simply existing 
without suffering, without birth, without death, without desire, craving. Okay, cool. So how do you do that? How do you get there? What's the secret? What's the prescription? He said, I have discovered the eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And those eight path factors will take you in the direction of nirvana and the end of your suffering. Wow, the end of my suffering. And I'm sitting there meditating, and I'm suffering, and this sounds so good. And all I have to do is meditate until the suffering ends. But it doesn't end. You know, you get more skillful, but you could be meditating for 30 years and still have a sore knee or an uncomfortable back or an agitated mind. Meditation is not linear. It's always happening right now, and it's always the first time. Okay, I'm working on it. So I want to become a Buddhist. Well, after a year of meditation and listening to Dharma talks, they said, we will make you a Buddhist. I said, oh, that is so cool. How do you do it? Well, we have a little ceremony, and you get a certificate suitable for framing. (laughs) And we give you a Buddhist name, and then you take the three refuges and the five precepts, and then you become an official Buddhist. And I was so excited. I said, okay, cool. So one Sunday after the Sunday service, two other people and myself became official Buddhists. And I was given the name Kusala, and you know now that that means skillful. And I felt really good about that because it meant to me that my teachers saw how skillful I was. And they say, oh no, Kusala. Doesn't work that way, man. You're really unskillful. And we want to give you that name to remind you each time somebody says Kusla, what you need to do and the direction you need to be in. You need to be more skillful. Okay, I got that now. More humble, more humility. Okay. Then they said the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, number one. The Buddha was a guy, a man, a human being who found his perfection through his own effort, insight, and wisdom. So we take refuge in that. It's like the Buddha means the one who woke up. So it's like calling somebody a president. Anybody can be a Buddha once they wake up. It's just a title. Okay. The Dharma, his teachings. He's reported to have said, I cannot enlighten you. I can only tell you how I did it. And the rest is up to you. Okay, so I've got a lot of work ahead, and I've got a certain level of accountability that falls on my shoulders. I got that. The Sangha. Take refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha are the monks and nuns. Novice monks fully ordained, novice nuns fully ordained. And you take refuge in them because they are human beings who have not yet achieved nirvana, but have devoted their life to it. And you might be able to learn something from them. You can ask them questions. You can see what they do. More importantly, you can see what they don't do. Okay. And now you gotta take the five precepts because the five precepts are the training precepts every Buddhist follows in the whole entire world, no matter what kind of Buddhist you are. 
Number one, the first training precept, I will practice not to take life. Well, I thought I can do that, you know, and that shouldn't be so hard. And then the mosquito shows up. <laughs> and all your confidence goes right out the window, which is where you wish the mosquito would go. And you go, man, okay, well, so what's the best way to practice? I said to myself, well, wake up in the morning and say to yourself, today I'm not taking anybody out. And you walk out that front door with confidence that you can make it through the whole day without taking anybody out. Then, as you get good at that, then lions and tigers and bears, oh my, you're not going to kill any of them either. Okay. Then, the mosquitoes, the cockroaches, the ants, I'm not going to kill any of them either. Oh man. Now, the deal with not killing is it takes a really long time not to kill. You know, you got the little cockroach and you're chasing them all over the place trying to capture them in a jar or something so you can take them outside. It might be a half hour, if not longer. And you could just spray the little guy, wish him a good rebirth, problem solved. <laughs> but no, you want to be a Buddhist, so you're not going to kill him. The second precept is, I will practice not taking what is not given. Now the word practice is really important because it identifies you as someone who hasn't reached that level of performance yet. You're still practicing. So you're going to practice not to take what is not given, which is different from not stealing. It's a little more complicated. You walk into Denny's, you order a hamburger, they got the ketchup on the table. You can't use it because it hasn't been offered to you. So you have to get the waitress over and say, can I use the ketchup? She says, well, that's what it's there for. <laughs> and you say softly, well, I'm just trying to be a Buddhist. <laughs> so not taking what is not offered allows you to see the attachment we have to stuff. We like our stuff. We buy a lot of stuff. We give stuff away. We sell stuff. You know, and it just seems to be part of our life. But it isn't our stuff ever. It's just stuff we're using until somebody wants it more than we do. They steal it. <laughs> or the new model comes out, and you want that more than what you have. Or you can't find it anymore because you put it away in a place you'll be sure to find it and it's not there because you forgot the place. So stuff causes us a lot of suffering, as does killing. Number three, I will practice not to indulge in sexual misconduct. Now this is sort of weird in Los Angeles because in LA everything is okay. So what did the Buddha have to say about sexual misconduct? He said there are four things you need to avoid because they increase suffering, not decrease suffering. The first thing you need to avoid is having sex with people who are married because it causes a lot of suffering. They're in a committed relationship. They want to love each other, like each other, be partners with each other. And here you are messing up the whole thing. 
No way, man. Stay away from people who are married. Next thing, do not have sex with people who are engaged, because they're going to be married. And you don't want to bring up any kinds of thoughts of, is this the right person for me? Should I wait? Should I find somebody? You don't want to go there. Just forget it. Number three, not to have sex with children because they are being supported by their parents and they are children. Number four, do not have sex with people against their will. You would think that's common sense, but common sense is a rare commodity these days. So those are the four things, and you would think every Buddhist would abide by those, would find it relatively easy to abide by those, and then you watch an episode of TMZ, and you realize they're breaking those four things all the time, which causes suffering. That's why we do this. We don't do that because it causes suffering. We do the five precepts because it lessens suffering. Number four. I will not speak unskillfully. False speech, harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip and idle chatter, I will try to avoid those because they increase suffering. They do not decrease suffering. In number five, the hardest one of all, I will practice not consuming intoxicants. Man, they just made marijuana legal. And now you're asking me not to consume any intoxicants at all? Yes, we are. Well, why, pray tell, are you doing that? Because when you get high, you get stupid. And you can break the other four precepts and not even know you did. (laughs) So clarity is important. We really honor clarity. Those are the five precepts. Those are the three refuges. I got my name. I'm ready to be a Buddhist. And now I got the rest of my life to practice. So it comes up to meditation. Morality is the basis. Five precepts. Morality is the basis of your practice. Now you have an advanced practice of meditation. Meditation is designed to cultivate your mind, to literally change your mind. And there were 44 different kinds of meditation we have available to us as a Buddhist to bring us to a place of balance and acceptance and equanimity. So I chose breathing meditation because breathing meditation can either go into mindfulness or tranquility. And one of the nice things about breathing meditation is you're always breathing. You don't have to have a candle or a picture. You know, or a CD of your favorite meditation music. You just got to breathe. And if you're not breathing, you don't need to meditate. (laughs) So I'm sitting there watching my breath. And I say, how are you supposed to watch your breath? Everybody says, watch your breath. I can't see my breath unless it's 30 degrees. Then I can see it. But other than that, no, no. Seeing is just sort of euphemistic. You want to feel the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. Okay, so what does that tell me? Well, the cool thing about sensation is every time you have a sensation, it's always happening right now. It's not the past, it's not the future, happening right now. 
So you have the sensation of breath, and you're coming to the present moment experience of your life, which we rarely visit because past and future is so much more exciting. Right now is the only place we can make our life. Right now is the only thing we can do about making our life. And how do we recognize that? Well, we practice sensation of breath, sensation of breath. And here we are. And when you're in that place of sensation of breath, you start to go inside, not outside. And you start realizing the answers you have been looking for have always been there, not out there. I have talked to people who have gone to India, joined an ashram to find the truth. And I'm thinking to myself, I saved myself a lot of money. I just looked inside. (laughs) And there it was. And now I had to decipher it. What does my truth mean? Because it is my truth. I have a unique life just like all of you. And we all have a relative truth. You can't drive faster than 65. And we all have an ultimate truth. And the ultimate truth I found was this. Everything is impermanent. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. Everything ultimately will be unsatisfactory because of that impermanence. And I do not exist in the way I think I do. I am a process, not an event. Therefore, I continue to manifest in different ways depending on the conditions I find myself in. That was the big truth I found. Now, it didn't get me a job, but it did get me a thing called peace. That now I could have peace simply residing in the present moment. Now, the light just went on back there, which indicates to me that my suffering will soon end. (laughs) And in order to help that along, I brought my harmonica with me. And I like to play a little blues because what else would a Buddhist play? <laughs> so here we go in the key of G. <laughs> <laughs> 